Well, welcome to Northridge Church, everybody. We're so glad to have you here. Um, I don't know. Uh, it was funny. Laura and I and the kiddos, we rode on the Elroy Sparta bike trail yesterday. We went through the train tunnels, all that kind of stuff. We went 18 miles. And, uh, and I'll tell you what, just standing up, like... <laughs> It just, you know, already I'm like groaning, you know, and uh, my son Jackson, he said, Dad, you might not even move around as much up there at the front. Probably not going to happen. I'm going to pace just the way it is uh, because I like to get everybody included as, uh, as I go. But uh, I just might move a little bit slower today. Uh, but we're glad to have you guys here. For those of you who are here for the very first time, we want you to know a couple of things. Uh, we want to say thank you for coming to check us out uh, here at Northridge and, and really just spending, you know, carving out a little bit of time on a holiday weekend uh, to spend with us. We appreciate that. But two, the second thing that's really important, too, that we always say here at Northridge is that this is a safe place. This is a safe place for you. Um, we're not a perfect place, but we're a safe place. And uh, so if you're here and you're here for the first time, I want you to know that no matter where you're at with God, maybe you've been walking with God for a long time, maybe you just started a relationship with Jesus, or maybe you're here and you say, I don't know if I even believe in God or believe in the Bible, honestly. No matter where you're at, you're here, here, or somewhere in between there, this is a safe place for you. And we invite you to ask questions about us, about God, about Jesus that's what we're here for. We actually enjoy that kind of a thing. And so we want you here, and this is a safe place for you. So thank you for being here. Uh, we, uh, I want to start with um, a picture this morning. Uh, who can tell me what this picture is? What is that? Anybody know what that is? That's a human spinal cord. That's right. It's the spine of a human being. Actually, I wouldn't have necessarily known if you would have just thrown that up there if that was a human spine, but that's a human spine. The reason I show you that is the spine, as you would probably imagine, is a fairly important kind of a deal to our function as as people. Um, It gives us stability. It's the thing that actually keeps our body to where it actually has form and keeps us upright. It gives us strength. Um, and, and actually supports our, uh, and the, the rest of our body. It actually makes everything, connects everything together. And then, of course, it protects the spinal cord, which is the communication between our brain to the rest of our body. The spinal column, or the spine, is really important for our normal function, for strength, for stability, for a lot of various reasons. The reason I bring that up is this. Today, I want to talk about two things that are not for a physical spine, but for a spiritual spine. I want to give us two principles today about things that not only should we believe in, that we need to really believe is true, but two things that we need to live according to, that we need to really adopt and live practically in our lives. You'll understand when I give you these two things as we go through the message today. So that's what we're going to talk about, two principles that would give us a spiritual spine, so to speak. Well, today we start a brand new series. It's July, and so we're in this brand new series, and this new series is called The Power of a Story. The Power of a Story. I love this. I'm really excited about July because one of my favorite things is a story. 
telling stories, yes, listening to stories and all that. But the truth is the power of a story cannot be measured very well. But we know that the power of a story is there. For example, if I were to give you a set of 10 points, I thought about doing it, but we're not going to take time to do this this morning. But let's just say I went through a, a version of like 10 points, 10 things that you're supposed to know. And I gave you bullet points and I had all the reasons you should do that. And I just gave you as much information as I could about those 10 points. And then we left it at that. The problem with that is that you would go home later on today or tomorrow and you would probably forget at least half of those 10 points, if not more. If you were trying to give them word to word, word for word for me, you would have a hard time bringing them up. But if I told you a story that attached to each one of those points, if I, or if I told you a larger story that made all those points for us, you would probably be able to remember it, wouldn't you? Because you would remember the story. You wouldn't necessarily remember all the points, but you would remember why the points were made because you'd remember the story. Well, in the month of July, what we're going to do is we're going to look at five different stories out of God's Word. So there's five weeks, five Sundays in July. We're going to look at five different stories, uh, and we're going to talk about the power of the principles that come out of those stories. Remember, Jesus, if he didn't do anything, what he did is he told a lot of stories. We call them parables, but that's what they are. They were stories. So today is a lot of fun because we get to talk about a story that, honestly, a lot of you would be like, uh, we're not in kids' church. This is a story that's considered a kids' church type of story. Today, we get to talk about Daniel and the lion's den. Maybe for some of you, you've never heard this story. Maybe for some of you, you heard it, but it was a long time ago. I remember that vaguely, being taught that when I was a kid. And some of you, you remember that that was taught like every year in kids' church, right? In children's church, in Sunday school. Well, today we're going to unpack Daniel and the lion's den, a great, great story. And it's going to pull out these two principles that give us this spiritual spine. Daniel was a great example of a man of faith in God and his relationship with God. So let me set up the context of the story. You guys know I have to give a little bit of history in this kind of stuff, right? This is how we go. And so it's in the 500s B.C., okay? This is the time in world history where it's the 500s B.C. So if to put this in perspective, this is five to 600 years before Jesus arrives on earth, okay? So this is, this is about the start. This is a little bit before, actually, a little bit before the start of the Roman Empire, to kind of put this into context of history. Okay, at that time in the 500s BC, there's a, a group of people called the Babylonians. You guys remember hearing about the Babylonians? Okay, the Babylonians were incredibly, they were growing in strength. They had its massive army and they began to conquer the known world, the Middle Eastern part of the world and beyond of that day. And so the Babylonians, they started expanding. Well, one of the countries that they conquer in the 500s BC was Israel. They conquered Israel and they take a lot of the best and the brightest of the people in Israel. And they once they had conquered them, they carried them off and they took them as slaves, as exiles. And they bring them back to the Babylonian Empire around the capital of the Babylonian Empire. And they force them to serve the king and the royal court and all that kind of stuff. So they basically said, hey, these are the best and the brightest that we can find in Israel. We're going to force them to live in the Babylonian Empire because they have a lot to offer us. They can make the Babylonian Empire stronger. Well, Daniel was one of those guys. Okay, Now, fast forward. The Babylonians conquered Daniel and a whole bunch of the Hebrews, the Israelites, are in exile in Babylon. 
Now, then along comes another group, and this is all important. I know you guys are like, I didn't come for a history lesson. I apologize. We'll get to the story in a minute. Okay? But 50 years later then, there's another group of people that come in, and they're called the Persians. Remember hearing about the Persians? Okay? You probably have heard about them kind of in relation to them battling the Greeks a lot. Okay? The Persian and the Greeks, they, they had a lot of wars against each other. Well, the Persians, they had to grow in strength first before they would challenge the Greeks. Well, this is before all that. Okay, they actually conquer the Babylonians and the Persians come in, which means there's a brand new king over the empire. Well, they keep the Israelites in the Persian empire. And Daniel stays there, and he now has to serve not the Babylonians, but he now has to serve the Persians, and specifically has to serve this guy named King Darius, who is the leader of the Persians. So where we're going to pick this up is the king of the Persians has just become king over this whole area, and he wants to reorganize the empire. He wants to organize it so he can control it better, and Daniel is going to be a part of that. So that's where we're at. We're going to be in the, the book of Daniel, chapter 6. If you'd like to follow along, we always give the references for this. Daniel chapter 6, we're going to start with verses 1 through 3, all right? Darius the Mede, which is the king, decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more capable Then all the other administrators and high officers, because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Okay, I'm going to stop there for just a minute so we get the gist of the story. The gist is this. The king wants to organize the empire. He makes 120 provinces, and he wants one person to rule over each of those 120 provinces. Does that make sense? He needs somebody to kind of keep an eye on things, each one of those provinces that he set up. But then the king wants three people to oversee all those people. Okay? These three people would be kind of, it's kind of like, this is how the hierarchy goes. So it's the king of the Persians, and then it's these three administrators underneath him. They report directly to him. And then these three control the 120 provinces, the high officials over that. Does that make sense? So you have the king, you have the three, and then you have these other 120. The reason that's important is because Daniel was one of those three that were placed over everybody else. And as verse 3 just told us, Daniel became, he kind of rose to the top. He became the best guy in this hierarchy, the best guy for the job. He started to prove himself, and the king's like, hey, this guy knows what he's doing. I know he's an Israelite and all. I mean, I know he's a Hebrew, but man, this guy can get this stuff done. He's awesome. And so he starts making plans to kind of change the hierarchy and say, okay, no longer is it going to be three, but instead I'm going to put Daniel in charge of everybody. And he's going to report directly to me. So he's going to be like second in command. That's kind of a big deal, right? It's kind of like vice president. This is, this is a big thing, okay? And so he wants to do this for Daniel. So that's kind of where we're at. And Daniel starts to do this. Now, the reason this is important, why do I give all that background? Here's why it's important. The other officials, how do you think they felt about Daniel gaining all this favor with the king and that they're about to lose their jobs? How do you think they felt about that? How would you feel about it, Right? They are not happy about it at all. They get jealous, really jealous. And so they start to plot a way to get rid of Daniel. They need to get him out of there. They need to get rid of this guy. He is doing too good. And so they want to take him out. And so they come up with this plan. They trick the king of the Persians into signing a law 
to making an official law of the entire Persian Empire that, that anybody that prays, if you pray, it's okay to pray, but the only person you can pray, say your prayers to, is to the king himself. You have to pray to the king of the Persian Empire. And that's the only one you can pray to. You cannot pray to God. You cannot pray to any other deities. You cannot pray to any other person. You have to pray. If you pray, if you choose to pray, you have to pray to the king. Well, this is a little bit of a problem for Daniel. Because he is a follower of Christ. Even though Jesus hasn't even arrived yet, he is a Christ follower. He follows God. He is faithful with his relationship with God. And he knows, he knows the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. He knows that. And so this is an issue for Daniel. So Daniel finds out that this law has been written. It's passed. And so let's find out what Daniel does. We're going to skip down. I'm giving you, obviously, the summary of the story. Skip down to verse 10. And this is what Daniel does as soon as he finds out this law is on the books. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down, as usual, in his upstairs room. With its windows open toward Jerusalem, he prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. This brings us to our first key principle that brings us a spiritual backbone or spine. And it is this. Peace comes from God. This is something that we not only need to believe in, but we need to live according to. Peace comes from God. Peace does not come from the circumstances surrounding our life. It does not come from a good day or a bad day. It doesn't come from a promotion at work. It doesn't come whether or not your children are obeying you. <laughs> That's a good day for me, by the way. All right? Peace does not rest on whether or not our favorite dinner is sitting on the table. Or, or if it's the opposite of that, which would be, a get for me, broccoli. If I see that, I'm like, oh, Lord, I thank you that my peace is in you. (laughs) I know I bring up food a lot. It's just one of those things that I have passion for. All right. Peace cannot come from our circumstances in the day. Because you know what will happen if our peace is going to come from the external stuff happening around us? You will be let down. You will be let down. Because it's just not going to happen. Peace cannot come from anywhere other than God. It has to come from the consistent source, the only consistent source that exists, and that is from God. Now, I want us to notice the difference between Daniel and the high officials. Daniel was at peace. The high officials were not, were they? They were not at peace. What were they? They were coveting. You realize that that's what they were doing. They, why did they want to get rid of Daniel? It was not just jealousy. What was it? It was coveting. They had a covetous heart. What does that mean? Coveting, a very simple definition, is they wanted what Daniel had. They wanted his power. They wanted the favor of the king. They wanted his position. They wanted the power that went with it. They wanted what Daniel had. They coveted his life, his position. And so the only way they could focus on getting peace in their own heart, you see, you follow that? The only way they could achieve peace was if they were able to gain the position that Daniel had. You see how dangerous it is if we seek peace outside of God? And Daniel, on the other hand, is completely different. His peace came from God. How do we know that? 
Did you notice what it said in verse 10 after Daniel finds out that this law has been passed that could potentially ruin his life? And what I didn't tell you is, as a result of this law, what do you, we already know the name of the story, Daniel and the lion's den. You know what happens if you don't follow the law or if you break this law? The part of the law that was written in, the punishment was very clear. You get thrown in the lion's den. Well, that's exciting, right? Daniel knows that he cannot pray to the king even though he's like really close with the king, even though he's gained the king's favor. He has everything to lose if he does not pray to the king unless instead prays to God. He has everything to lose. Yet Daniel's peace does not come from a law or a relationship even with the highest person in the world, the king. His peace comes from Almighty God. How do we know that? Because in verse 10 it says that Daniel, immediately after he found out the law, he went and prayed and thanked God for his life. Now, really key point in this, notice it doesn't say that he prayed because the law had just been passed. This is really important. Daniel did not go to pray because he said, "Uh uh-oh, life's about to fall apart, I better start praying. Daniel's been praying his whole life. Do you notice what it said in verse 10? It said, Daniel did as he always had done. He prayed throughout the day, three times a day, just like he had always been doing. In other words, his peace did not come because a law had been passed that said he couldn't pray or could pray or anything like that. He prayed because he knew his peace came from God. In the 1990s, um, in the country of Peru, there was a terrorist group. I don't know if you guys remember this. I vaguely remember this from history. I didn't study this much at all. But there was a terrorist group in Peru called the Senderistas, Okay, the senderistas. And uh, the, the whole point of the senderistas was organized around what they would try to do. They were a very violent organization, and they were a terrorist group. And so they would uh, enact acts of terror on people. They would kill and torture people in order to advance their cause. And their cause was to overthrow the Peruvian government in order to replace the government with a communist system. That was their goal. They wanted to replace the Peruvian government with a system of communism. So the Sindaristas, that's what that was their goal. Well, there was another guy there, a follower of Jesus in the 1990s. His name was Francisco. He was, I think, 22 years old. He was a young guy. And he all of a sudden got this passion, this sense from God that he was supposed to share the love of Jesus, the message of Christ, with these terrorists. Okay, how many of you would like that calling from God? This is the calling that he got from God. And so he, he kind of got this calling, but he didn't know how to go about this because people were literally running from the rest of the country and, and running into the city of Lima there, a, a huge city in Peru, because they were trying to escape from the terrorists who were basically terrorizing the, the, the countryside. And so they were coming in. And he said, how am I going to do this? How am I going to get the message out? We can't even find the terrorists. They're all in hiding out in, all over the country of Peru. So how am I going to get the message out? Well, a few days later, a, few, few, a little while after that, um, Francisco was walking in front of the National Palace. And as he was walking, there's a car that speeds by. And one of the, cinder, the they had cinderistas in it. And they launched a bomb. They threw a bomb out of the car into the National Palace area. And it went off and just, it caused major destruction. And Francisco happened to be right in front of the National Palace at that time. Well, the bomb didn't hit him, but the police and the authorities swarmed the area right away, and they found Francisco there, and he looked suspicious, so they arrested him. And they took him to the National Prison. Well, guess where they put him? 
because they thought maybe he was part of this bomb plot, they put him in the, it was a multi-level jail, and they put him on the floor and in the same room as 500 other senderistas, terrorists who had killed people and had been arrested for it. So he found himself, even though he was completely innocent, he was not a senderista, he never would have thought about tossing a bomb, he was a follower of Jesus. He is the opposite of that, and yet now he finds himself locked up in with 500 other terrorists. Well, guess what? He ends up spending a year of his life in prison without trial. He was completely innocent. He ended up being a year in there before they finally gave him a trial. And eventually he was acquitted. He, they were, he was found innocent and they let him go. But it was a year-long process that he was locked up with all these terrorists. But that's not the most amazing part. While Francisco was in that prison, he actually started to share his faith in Christ with all the terrorists that he was forced to live with for a year in prison. And you know what happened? Over 60 of them accepted Jesus and became followers of Jesus that year. And in fact, a church, when the time that this story came out, there was a church that was started inside the national prison made up of former terrorists. Isn't that pretty amazing? Why was that possible? Let me tell you why that was possible. It's because Francisco knew this first principle. His peace did not come from what is happening to him. His peace came from God and God alone. Because let's be honest, how many of us, if we were thrown into prison and we were innocent, we had not done anything wrong and we were there and we were considered a terrorist when we've never done anything like a terrorist activity and we were thrown in there and we lost a year of our life in prison, how many of us would say, God, I'm at peace. Thank you. This is wonderful. It's all I've ever wanted to do is lose a life in prison. It's great. But Francisco, maybe he didn't have great days. I'm sure he wasn't saying, God, thank you. This is awesome. But what he did do is he said, okay, I'm in here. I'm at peace with my God. And he has given me an opportunity to share the love of Christ with a whole bunch of terrorists who otherwise will kill and torture other people. And I have a chance to make a huge impact. He was at peace with God, even though maybe he didn't like the circumstances of his life. And so peace comes from God, just like Daniel shows us that he is going to be consistent no matter what's happening in the empire around his life. All right, so let's go back to the book of Daniel. Let's go back to the story. So Daniel violates this law, right? Very clearly, he doesn't hide it. The windows were open. The officials hear and see him praying. And so they go to the king. There's no way that Daniel can refute it. And so they haul Daniel in front of the king. And finally, the king realizes, okay, he was duped. He was tricked into signing a law that really put him at odds because he doesn't want to kill Daniel. He does not want to throw Daniel in the lion's den, but he knows if he is worth his salt as a king, he has to follow up with his law. And so we're going to pick up the story where the king realizes, okay, I've got to follow up with the law that I wrote. And so here we are, Daniel, verse 16 is where we're at. So at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into the den of lions. The king said to him, may your God whom you serve so faithfully rescue you. Notice that the king is hoping that his God is as powerful as Daniel thinks. Do you notice that? 
The king hopes that Daniel gets saved here. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the dead. The king sealed the stone with his royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. The typical punishment if you broke a royal seal was death. Okay, so nobody's messing with that seal. Okay, so that's why they did it. Daniel, answer, uh, they go on, and then the king returned to his palace and spent the night, listen to this, fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. The king was worried about Daniel. He realized he'd been tricked, but he's worried about him. And he's hoping that God saves him, even though he thinks, nope, the, the lions are going to tear him to pieces. And so let's pick up what happens, verses 19 through 22. Very early the next morning, the king didn't sleep anyway, right? The king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, because he's really expecting the worst here. Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you served so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions. I'm sure the king breathed a sigh of relief when he heard this. Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lion's mouths so that they would not hurt me. For I have been found innocent in his sight, in God's sight. And I have not wronged you, your majesty. Now, just know, I don't know if you noticed, there's some subtleness here. Daniel, we kind of get a glimpse of why Daniel is so really good at his job. Did you notice what he did there? Do you notice? It's really subtle. But Daniel does not waste an opportunity. He was just saved from the lions, from hungry lions who were supposed to tear him to pieces as soon as he hit the floor. But he's not. He's still alive. God saved him. And now the king is there and he's just said, hey, I hope God saved you. And Daniel says, not only did God save me, but by the way, king, God found me innocent. Innocent. And then notice what he says at the very end there. He says, oh, and by the way, I never did any wrong to you either, your majesty. In other words, I've served you faithfully as I've served God faithfully. Do you realize that? These officials who tricked you, they're the ones at fault. I am not. I'm going to serve you faithfully just as I serve God faithfully. You notice that he takes this as an opportunity. And, and, I, and we're not going to read this part of the story, but you know what happens to the other high officials? They get the lion's den. The king says, I see now what I've done. And he corrects it. He justifies and he switches this around. And so they get what is coming to them because of their covetous, jealous hearts. So this brings us to, though, our second key point, because we see that Daniel's peace not only comes from God, but the second point that we need to believe in and need to live by is this. Hope comes from God. I'm going to talk about this because this is a big one. It's obvious that Daniel did not place his hope in the relationship with the king or, or in the law or the law being rescinded or anything like that. He prayed just like he always had done, and he was saved from the lions. But his hope was not in the king or anybody else. The truth is, for you and I, what does this mean for us? What it means is that sometimes we place our hope, our trust in a better life, in a lot of things. Sometimes we put it in the right presidential candidate being elected. Anybody here lost any sleep or worried about that a little bit? I don't know if you've noticed, but we're in an election year. Anybody notice that? If you haven't, I'm pretty sure you're living underwater somewhere, under a rock, right? Because there's been a few articles, a few blogs, a few commercials, 
a few debates out there uh, where the candidates are, and, and what I'm thankful for is the candidates are so gracious to each other. Okay, now I'm really being facetious, aren't I? But the truth is, we get so worked up. Why do we sometimes get so worked up about politics and about a political party and about a candidate and all that kind of stuff? Because we, a lot of times, put our hope and our trust in something that is not God, don't we? Okay? We put our hope and our trust in something that is not God. Right? How many of you have worried about our political climate. I know I have a little bit. And what I need to do is sometimes I need to remember, I need to remember that our peace and my hope needs to be in God, first and foremost. Right? It's hard because, trust me, I hear how our candidates talk to each other, and I am probably, I think you guys are probably similar to me, I am not a fan of how they talk to each other. And I get worked up about the things that they talk about because they, they matter. Do the laws matter? Do our candidates matter? Absolutely, of course they do. But our hope and our trust cannot come from political candidates or laws or anything like that. If our hope and trust is in that, I can tell you it's going to fail. We're going to be let down. Um. Just uh, These are dangerous questions, but let me ask you a couple of questions. How many of you would say that your spouse is perfect? They have never let you down or frustrated you. I was just, I was just, there we go. I, I have one. There you go. I knew somebody would try to win brownie points today. I knew it. And the two people that raised their hand, you know why they're willing? Because their spouse is not here. <laughs> they have no way for them to defend them. That was awesome. The only two people that don't have their spouse in here. Okay, that's perfect. Yeah, we all know that that's not the truth. We cannot put our hope and trust in a spouse. Do we love them? Yes. Do I love my wife? Absolutely. Absolutely. More than I can express to you. But she's not perfect. If I put my hope and trust for a better life and my salvation of my sins or anything else in my wife, I'm going to be let down. And I'm going to let her down. I have let her down. It's just the truth. It's the same way with our laws. It's the same way with our judicial system. It's the same way with the stock market. It's the same way with anything that you can place to try to put in place of God. Any of those things, if we try to put any of our hope and trust in those things, we're going to be let down. Our hope needs to come from God. Um, Just this last month, uh, the Wesleyan denomination, which we're a part of, the Wesleyan Church, uh, every four years we have what is called General Conference. And it's a global conference. People from all over the world come from, you know, the Wesleyan denomination all over the world come to the United States, and we have this general conference. It's every four years. One of the things that we do at general conference is we elect, every four years, we elect a general superintendent, which is basically the leader of the Wesleyan Church. Okay, So every four years is what we do. Well, this year, what is interesting, it doesn't always happen this this way. Sometimes there's just one person that runs, and they they have to be nominated. They cannot choose and be like, hey, uh, I want to run. Like, I can't throw my name in the hat. You know, be like, hey, I think I'd like to run for general superintendent. Okay? Not only would I not do that, but you can't do that. You have to be nominated by a group of people and all this kind of stuff. There's a whole process. Well, this year, two people were nominated for general superintendent position. Um, 
And, uh, and so these two men ran uh, against each other, so to speak, in this election, although they weren't really against each other. But they were both in the running. So at General Conference this year, which was just last month, we elected a new general superintendent. And what they did is they came up and they announced on one of the afternoons, they announced the election results and who had won and, and uh, ultimately who had been defeated. Well, this is what was cool about it. <clears throat> I love this. Love this. Because it demonstrates what we're about. What happened was, after they announced the results, the acting general superintendent, the one that we've had for the last several years, Joanne Lyon, she got uh, the other two men up there. She invited both of them up onto the platform at the same time. Remember, the results have just been read. The defeated and the one who won. And she invited both those men up together on the platform together. And this is what happened. She invited them to speak. And the, the person who had been defeated, he spoke first. And you know what he did? He started to give a speech and he started to share about the pra- started to sing the praises of the person who had defeated him. He said, this man is an awesome man of God. He is humble. He is an amazing leader. I am so excited about the future of the church because he is going to be our new leader. He sung his praises. And then he shared this, which was really cool. He said, most of you don't know this, but Wayne and I, which is the, the other guy who won, he said, Wayne and I, we've shared many phone conversations together over the last several months. We've shared our wisdom. We've shared our thoughts as to what they'd had to, because they had to come up with a whole plan of what they were going to do in case they were elected. And so they talked several times on the phone about the wisdom of what they should do, of who they should nominate for their cabinet, all those kind of things. And, and then he said this, he said, you know, we've prayed together many times. And he said, we've prayed for each other many times together. I wonder if our political candidates have ever done that. I think we know the answer to that. Why is that possible for these guys who are going after the same thing? Why is it possible that they can pray for each other and hope for the best and hope that God does what he's supposed to do? You know why they can do that? Because their hope And their peace does not come from an election, does not come from anything that happens to them or doesn't happen to them, does not happen if they get promoted or not get promoted, does not happen whether they're they're embarrassed in front of the entire General Assembly because he was not good enough and this other guy was. Their hope and peace does not come from that. It comes from knowing that their faith is in God and God alone and that they and God are good. If they are good with God, they are good. Isn't that an awesome thing? And they demonstrated it in front of thousands of people last month. Beautiful. By the way, the acting general superintendent, he got up and he said the same things back to the other guy that was just defeated. He said, this guy is awesome. He's humble. We did pray together and we loved every minute of it. He's a great leader. They sung each other's praises. They didn't have to tear each other down. We don't need to tear each other down because our hope and peace can come from God. So, how do we end this <laughs> on a 4th of July weekend? It is 4th of July. We are here and we get to celebrate freedom, don't we? <clears throat> Actually, I get to celebrate my birthday because my birthday is on the 4th of July. By the way, thank you for throwing fireworks and everything for me tomorrow. I appreciate that. You guys have planned barbecues and parties and parades. I love it. It's fantastic. It's, it's amazing. I just, I feel very, very blessed. I appreciate that. Totally kidding. I'm not quite that naive. Most of the time. 
But we are here to celebrate an amazing country. I know I've spent a long time this morning talking about how we cannot put our hope and our trust in our judicial system or in our laws or in our political climate or anything like that. And that is the truth. But I will say that we can fully celebrate, and I believe we should fully celebrate, the fact that we have the freedom in this nation to celebrate and worship God fully and freely, where, where the president does not force us and say, you have to pray to me. We don't, have, we don't have a president that has said that yet. There may be a day, but not yet. We have an amazing nation. And so... In addition to that, though, when you are having fireworks or you're eating brats or whatever you're going to, if you like broccoli, go to it. That's fine. That's how you celebrate our nation. It's weird to me, but go to it. Okay. However you celebrate, here's what I want you to remember this 4th of July weekend. Your hope and your peace needs to come from God. A bad day can't take it away from you a different country or different laws that are passed, the wrong political candidate or political party in power does not take it from you. You cannot put your hope and trust in a political candidate. You will be let down. You can't put it in a judicial system. It's going to be let down. The question I have for you today, and this is, this is a question I do not want you to ask philosophically. Okay? This is one of those questions we could debate and we could talk about in a classroom and all kinds of stuff. This is not that kind of question. In fact, you know we don't ask those kind of questions very often here. This is a personal question. I want you to ask yourself this question, not in an ethereal, philosophical way, but ask yourself this question. Where have you placed your hope for peace? Honestly, if you were honestly to answer that question, where have you placed your hope? And if I were to put it in a different way, what do you hope happens in your life? Have you put your hope in a new job? Have you put your hope in a new reality? Have you put your hope in a promotion at work? Have you put your hope in a relationship working out? Have you put your hope in, I don't know, plug it in. A new car, a new house, a new place to live. I don't know what, all the different hundreds of things that we put our hope in. If you were honest with yourself, what is on your heart that you would say, unless this happens, I don't know that I can be happy? Whatever the answer to that question is, that's where you've placed your hope. And if the answer to that is not God, then it's not in the right place. We've got to put our hope and our trust and realize our peace will come only from God. We're trying to seek it somewhere else. It will fail and we'll be let down. Let's pray. God, I thank you for this country where we can worship you freely. We didn't have to fear walking through the doors. We, we, I know we paid for this freedom with a high price, but you also have blessed this country, this nation, to, be, to have great independence, great freedom. And I thank you for that, God. We give you glory for uh, providing such an amazing place to live in this country, to be free from so many things that other people just can only dream about. But I also just ask God today that you would help us to put our hope and our trust in you. Because God, we're seeking sometimes peace from 
other places that it doesn't need to be. And so, God, I just pray that you would help us. If we are putting our hope and our trust, our faith in anything other than you, God, reveal it to us. Help us to see the honest truth. Help us to put our hope and trust in you so that as a result, we will experience peace that passes understanding. You promise that you can give peace that passes our ability to understand it. God, we want that kind of peace. We need that kind of peace in our own lives, in our country, in our world. So I pray that we would seek that and we put our hope where it needs to be firmly anchored, founded in you. And as a result, that we would have the strong spiritual spine that comes from a strong relationship with you. We pray this in your name, Jesus.